0: The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let me invite you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. In the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And as you're taking your Bible and looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6, together we are continuing our walk through the beauty of Christian worship with reverence and awe. These aspects of our Christian worship service and what they are, why we do them, what they mean, why it is significant to us that we join with generations and centuries of Christians who have done these same things. And this morning we're looking at the topic of creeds and confessions under this title, We Believe, We Believe, looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6. And if you've got your Bible there, open to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's pray and hear God's word this morning. Gracious God, with your word open before us, how we confess that we love your law, we love your word, and yet, Lord, we are often slow to understand and sometimes even slower to obey. And so, with your spirit, would you come now and descend upon us, descend upon our hearts, and descend upon our minds that we might be a people more faithful, more obedient, more ready to confess our hope and trust in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. People of God, hear God's word from Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning at verse 4 through verse 9. Actually, sorry, beginning at verse 1 through verse 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. I invite you to keep your Bible open there, and we'll be looking at this and other... Verses this morning as we think about creeds and confessions. Uh, very quickly, just to give you some context of what we just read here, the book of Deuteronomy is uh, an instruction of Moses at the close of the Israelites' journey right before they go into the promised land. And it is Moses' last words to the people as they go on without him into the promised land. And the book of Deuteronomy is a, a, a very long, don't forget these most essential truths. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. And we're looking particularly at verses 4 through 9 this morning and we'll get to that in just a moment, but before we do that, I want to I want to say that I have uh, at least three kinds of people in mind this morning as uh, we want to think about this idea of creeds and confessions in the context of a Christian worship service, three kinds of people and these are three kinds of people no doubt that you experience and uh, you might be able to identify with one or more of them at some point in your life. And uh, some of you, maybe even perhaps right now. These three kinds of people. One is the kind of person who believes that truth is something that can be different for different kinds of people. Someone who believes that truth is, we use this term, subjective. And what this sounds like is a person who says, you know, you know that, that may be true for you but it's not true for me. And so we'll let what's true for you be true for you, and what's true for me be true for me, and we'll just go our own ways, and truth is whatever I want it to be. A person who believes in subjective truth, and in the context of the Christian faith, perhaps, subjective Christian beliefs. You may believe that about God, but I prefer to think about God this way. Uh, Maybe you know people like this, or uh, maybe you're tempted into this time of thought uh, yourself. That's one. A second type of person who is more cynical and skeptic towards the claims of the Christian faith, uh, or someone who even perhaps says, I don't believe in anything. A cynical skeptic who believes in nothing. Now, it's very important to understand that it is impossible to believe in nothing Because the assertion of belief in nothing means that there is a something that you are identifying as nothing that you do not believe in. It is impossible to believe in nothing because that's a something. Everyone believes in something. It's just a question of what. What do you believe? If someone says that they believe in nothing or that they are totally open-minded to the extent that they don't claim or assert anything themselves... Uh, They are, as uh, the famous uh, 20th century author C.S. Lewis says, someone who has an open mind. And he goes on to say something about this. Now, open-mindedness may be a virtue in some senses, but listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, an open mind in questions that are not ultimate is useful. So when it comes to issues that are not ultimate, an open mind is useful. You go to a new restaurant that you haven't been to and you have an open mind about whether or not you'll enjoy it. You have an open mind about a particular kind of flavor of this or that that your friend likes that you haven't tried and so you're open-minded at the idea that you may like it but you're not sure, but you're willing to try it. C.S. Lewis would say, an open mind about non-essential, non-fundamental matters is a great virtue. But, he says, an open mind about ultimate foundations is idiotic. If your mind is so open on things of ultimate reality, at least may your mouth be shut. If your mind is going to be so open about these ultimate realities that you'll give and take anything most essential, at least may your mouth be shut. This is a person who has no criteria to discern right and wrong. They only have perceptions and inclinations, nothing solid, no foundation. Okay, so you have someone who has truth is relative, true for you, true for me, whatever, we'll go our own ways, truth doesn't matter. You also have someone who says, well, there's no such thing as truth anyway, and it's all whatever. The third person, though, and this may become perhaps more relevant. A third person is the Christian believer who believes, but who does not know what they believe. The Christian believer who asserts faith in Christ with great uncertainty about the content of the Christian faith. Now, at some point in time, that's all of us, probably. But a Christian believer who does not know what they believe about Jesus, who does not know what they believe about God. We're thinking this morning about the idea of a body of truth and a body of faith that the church has, what does the church believe and confess? And how does that intersect the person who believes that all truth is relative and your truth is their truth and whatever? Or the person who believes that there's no such thing as truth, how does that intersect that person? Or how does the church's claim to doctrine and truth and teaching through creeds and confessions intersect the life of a Christian believer who says, you know, I believe, I'm just not so sure what. Do creeds and confessions matter for the life of the church? The answer is yes. And we want to see two things here. That creeds, these things that we have in the history of the Christian church that seem perhaps dusty and antiquated and not even relevant to us, I want us to see that they are two things. One, they are biblical. And two, they are beneficial. That The creeds of the Christian faith, the creeds of Christianity are Biblical and beneficial. So as we think about biblical, looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is a very important text. But first of all, you know, someone can say, I believe in God. And that's a great thing. But the follow-up question is, what do you believe about God? What is the substance of your belief about God? Or other people are more inclined to say, you know, I'm not really interested in all these, you know, uh, cross T's and dotted I's and details about Christian teaching. I just like Jesus. Just give me Jesus. Talk to me about Jesus. What Jesus? What do you believe about that Jesus? Who is he? What you believe matters. Your definitions and understandings about those beliefs matter. You may feel that you don't have a great grasp on them or maybe you feel like you have a stronger grasp than other people but still you'd like to grow. Regardless, we as Christian people need to know what we believe and why we believe it. And that is an element of the Christian faith that we trace back long into the Old Testament, of course, because we find in Deuteronomy chapter 6 one of the very first illustrations of a creed creed. Now, when we use the English word creed, it comes from a Latin word credo, which just means I believe. So a creed is a statement of faith, a statement of belief. And we have one of the most important examples of biblical creeds here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is called the Shema. In Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 9, in the Jewish faith, this is called the Shema. And this is one of the most fundamental expressions of the Jewish faith And the word and the name, really, Shema, comes from the very first word of verse 4. You notice there in verse 4 that it begins with here, and the word here in Hebrew is Shema. And so this this statement of creed, this statement of faith, begins, Shema, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. So this is called the Shema. It is connected to the idea of obedience. This is what I believe, and this is what I obey. Look again in verse 4. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So notice how verse 4, the statement of faith, connects to verse 5, an idea of obedience. Verse 4, this is the God that we believe in, the one God, the one true and living God, and it is to this God, verse 5, that we commit ourselves to love with our heart and soul and might. You say yourself, you know, those words sound familiar and we'll we'll look at that in just a second. But again, this is this is the Shema, the Jews would recite and in many cases still do, would recite the Shema every morning and every evening. The Shema is one of the most fundamental aspects of personal devotion of the Jewish life. It would also have been the centerpiece of Jewish synagogue worship. This is the central creed of Judaism. Jewish children would learn to recite the Shema as soon as they could speak, indicating that this is one of the most essential truths of the Jewish faith. If you look actually in verses 8 and 9, it might help to explain, uh, if you've ever seen a very Orthodox Jew who's very committed to their faith, you'll notice that sometimes uh, they they wear boxes on their heads. Those are called phylacteries. Phylacteries, and that comes out of verse 8. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. A phylactery is a box on oftentimes leather straps that had the scroll put inside the phylactery with the words of the Shema written on it, put in a box, and then literally worn on the head of an Orthodox Jew. Or if you've ever been to the home of an Orthodox Jew, they have mezuzahs on the doors of their homes. And that comes out of verse 9. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And the Shema would be written on a scroll and placed in the mezuzah. And the Orthodox Jew coming in and out of their home would touch their mezuzah as a confession of their hope in the Shema, the God of Israel. Okay? And so this is the the creedal life of the Jewish faith inclined here out of the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, This still happens today, of course, in many Orthodox Jewish traditions. But during the time of Jesus... The, the traditions of the rabbis would oftentimes go further than the scriptures, go into oral traditions, and they would get into all kinds of arguments about if you're going to the recite the Shema, you could only recite the Shema facing this way or that way, standing or kneeling, and they would argue about how you would do it. Not just that you should recite the Shema, but the actual integral details of your your, your body and how you present yourself and what you should be wearing and what you should be thinking about and, and all the rest. But the point is, is that there is inside the Shema the confession of faith of Judaism and there is this this urgency associated with it that we should not just believe it but do something about it to teach them to believe them to to teach them to the next generation maybe you remember that these words sound just like what Jesus says in Mark chapter 12 when they come to him and say Jesus what's the most important commandment in Mark chapter 12, he recites the Shema to them because as a Jewish boy, that would be his creed, his substance of faith. But as you look at these words again, verse 5 you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Um, you and I know that we don't do this. Not just that we don't bind it on our head and put it on our door and wear flak trees and touch our mezuzahs. we don't do that. But we do not love God entirely as we ought. We don't oftentimes pass down our faith the way we ought to either. And so we are not Jewish ourselves because we have the hope of Jesus associated with this statement. Not just the Lord our God, the Lord is one, but we confess that Jesus is Lord. And as he taught his disciples what it meant to believe this and also believe the full gospel, there are other statements in the New Testament that are also creedal statements of faith. Okay, So just like Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a creedal statement of Judaism, there are creedal statements of Christianity in the New Testament. This is a summary of Jewish faith, but there are summaries of Christian faith. Uh, Four examples here quickly. Think of uh, Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus asked Peter, uh, what do you believe? What do you believe about me? Remember, Jesus had asked the people, you know, what, do, what do the people say about me? And they said, well, some think you're Elijah, some think you're you know, all these different people, and what do you believe? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16. And it's understood that early generations of Christians would use those particular words of Peter as a confession of faith when they would join the church. They would use Peter's words. I believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that became a creedal statement, a summary statement of Christian faith in the first century. Think also of 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul explains the substance of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4, where he says, We believe and we hold that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised. And you say to yourself, Well, that, yeah, that I mean that that is the gospel, isn't it? But the gospel had to be clarified, and the gospel had to be summarized, and the early church often adopted Paul's summary: Christ's death, Christ's burial, Christ's resurrection. That is a creedal statement of the Christian faith. Also in Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 4 through 6, Paul writes what many New Testament scholars believe to be a formula that was used by new Christians when they were baptized in the early church. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6 says, There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. These, these summary statements. Again, one more in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, as Paul writes to young Timothy, saying, Great indeed we confess. Is the mystery of godliness. Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. These, these statements from the New Testament would be used by the Christian church as creedal summaries, confessional summaries of what they believed. And so you think to yourself, um, does that matter for us? Does that matter for us? Absolutely. Because creeds are summaries of biblical truth. Creeds are digestible uh, content to help direct Christian believers where we are directed to confess our hope and to declare it. But we have to know what to say. What is it that you believe? You have to be taught that. You have to learn. What What is it exactly that I believe as a Christian? And the way you want to answer that question is not by going rogue and inventing some new sect of Christianity in which you invent your own confession of faith, but the church has through the traditions of the scriptures and through church history, confessions and creeds through which we have the opportunity to say, this is what we believe and we want to be very clear about it. So there is a biblical basis for creeds, but I want to think now very practically about why creeds are beneficial, right? Because we confessed the Apostles' Creed together a little bit ago. Why? You know, what, what good is it? They're not just dusty words from the second century. They are very important things. So why are they beneficial? Three things. One, creeds are beneficial for the clarity of truth. Creeds are beneficial for the clarity of truth. Creeds give us very clear statements on exactly what we believe and where we stand on important issues. And these things help to unify the church. Creeds clarify the truth and unify the church. So that's why we can uh, link together arm in arm with other churches because they believe most essentially, most fundamentally, at the bottom line, these things, the Apostles' Creed, is kind of uh, the, the, the bottom line of ultimate reality that a Christian must believe to be considered a Christian. And other churches who believe that, we join together with them, and that's what we mean by ecumenical relations, cross denominations, whatever. It doesn't matter what denomination, so long as they hold to these essential tenets. There are also other ecumenical creeds besides the Apostles' Creed, like the Chalcedonian Creed and the the Nicene Creed. These are creeds that come through church history as, as generations of Christians were trying to hammer out exactly what do we believe about Jesus? What do we believe about God? What do we believe about the church? It is not our job as a church to reinvent the wheel about all of these things, but to stand in the line of clarifying the truth as other generations have. The creeds then are like maps, to help us understand that that if we chase down this thought, that it ends in a dead-end road and we don't want to go that way. And I'll be illustrating why that's so important here in, in just a little bit at the end because we still need the truth to be clarified in this age. In fact, every single age needs the clarification of the truth. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Secondly, not just the clarity of the truth, but also the defense of the truth. The defense of the truth. Creeds are necessary and beneficial for the defense of the truth. And, and you may not be given to the you know, personality inclination that says truth needs to be defended. But truth does actually need to be not just clarified, but defended. For example, um, I remember making a comment several, several seven months ago when we sang the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy that uh, I listened to a recording of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir sing that song and they change the words because we sing that song uh, uh, Blessed Trinity. All the peoples adore thee, Blessed Trinity and the Mormons, they say God in thy glory uh, through eternity rather than Blessed Trinity. Why? Because they don't believe in the Trinity. A Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, cannot and will not say the Apostles' Creed. Therefore, the Apostles' Creed serves as a delineating defense of orthodox Christianity from, let it be said, cults to protect the integrity of the Christian faith from those who would deny the substance of the Christian faith. Creeds are important for that reason. These are the distinctive realities of the Christian faith and confessions and creeds usually arise in response to some kind of false teaching that's looking to impose itself to the church and the church has to rise up to say, no, we don't believe that. We believe this. This is wrong. This is right. Uh, That was never more prevalent than in the 4th century when the Council of Nicaea was meeting and they were trying to argue about whether or not Jesus is God or not. The church had to understand what they meant about their faith in Jesus Christ. Is he God or is he not? And the Council of Nicaea was all about explaining that over against a heresy called Arianism that said Jesus is not God. Paul explains that the church needs to be aware of these things because in Ephesians 4 verse 14 he says that the church is going to be tossed to and from by the waves and carried about by the winds of false doctrine. If you don't have an anchor, you're going to be rocked about by all kinds of uh, false teachings that will lead you astray and even into death because they don't lead to the hope of the gospel. We need to have an anchor. In Jude chapter 3, we're told to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The Christian faith, in one sense, belongs to us as we are Christian people, But in another sense, it belongs to all the successive ages and generations of Christian people who have handed down the heritage of Christian truth to us and entrust us to continue to contend for and defend the faith of the gospel. So when we say in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in one God, it is not just a statement of truth, although it is, it is also a word of defiance, to all forms of paganism and false idolatry that would seek to assert false gods. When we say we believe in one God, we are saying we do not believe that I am God. I do not believe that money is God. I do not believe in this idol or that idol. When we confess our faith, we are denying false claims of false gods. There is one God, this God, he is our God. That is, people of God, you have to appreciate this. When we do that, It is a devastating blow to the culture that says you must accommodate yourself to our ways. The church says we will not. And we have not through the ages and we will not in this age either, even if it seems like there has never been more pressure for cultural accommodation than in this age. And when we feel that pressure, it is all the more important for the church to stand up and say, this is what we believe and not stutter about it. It's very important. But if we're inclined, I don't want you to think just negatively about that. But the defense of the truth is an important thing. This third thing, creeds are beneficial not just for the clarity of the truth, the promotion of the truth, or sorry, uh, not just for the clarity of the defense, but also the promotion of the truth. Creeds are beneficial for the promotion of the truth. When we say people of God, what do you believe? It is the corporate identity of the people of God then to say together, we believe this. It forms our identity as the people of God. When you read those words, think for a moment about the successive generations of people who have sat in the exact same pew and said those exact same words. Your grandparents and their grandparents and their grandparents, the exact same words. What what is the significance of that? There is a deep abiding significance to the historical identity of the people of God saying together, we believe this. And it has been handed to us as stewards. And notice how in the Shema, this is such an important teaching, isn't it? When they say, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. In the house, when you walk, when you sit down, when you stand up, what does that mean? All the time. It means all the time. Every single generation of Christian believers has an inherent obligation to hand to the next generation the substance of the Christian faith And you know how this, you know, Boy Scouts camp and all the rest, you leave it better than you found it, right? So that the jewel of the Christian faith is as beautiful when you hand it off as when you received it because you cared for it when you possessed it. That the content of the Christian faith is is rich and true and abiding to the next generation as you handed it to them because you have loved it yourself as you entrusted it then to the next generation as it was entrusted to you. Every generation has this obligation to pass it on. And we see that here. And we see it, of course, in the covenantal obligations of the people of God. And not just in individual families, but in the entire covenant community that we, the people of God, covenant together to encourage and admonish one another in the Lord and in our faith to walk alongside each other in Christian truthfulness to contend for the faith so it matters for all those things but also very very clearly here it close with some examples because what we do here what we say in these things, it really does matter in, in this age. We know when we, when we affirm our faith with the Apostles' Creed, it matters because there was just a major uh, poll brought about, done by Ligonier Ministries. Ligonier Ministries is the one who publishes Table Talk, uh, formerly R.C. Sproul's ministry. They did a, a great survey of American evangelicals in association with Lifeway Publishing House to find out what do evangelical people believe. And they, they asserted that an evangelical is someone who believes that the Bible is the highest authority for what they believe, that it's important to encourage non-Christian people to trust in Jesus, that Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of sin, and only those who trust in Christ as their Savior receive the free gift of salvation. So they quantified that an evangelical believes those four essential things. Okay? And then they took those people who identified with those and then asked them a bunch of questions. And some of the results are greatly encouraging. For example, one of the statements was, there is one true God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And 97% of evangelicals say they believe that. Now, I don't know what's wrong with three of them, 3%. Okay, But nine, an overwhelming majority of evangelical people say, we believe in the Trinity. Great, that's fantastic. The second statement, God counts a person as righteous not because of their work, but only because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That's a great statement, and 91 percent of evangelicals believe it. Again, you nine know, percent, you know, are not paying attention. But 91 percent of Christians evangelical Christians say we believe this. But listen to this statement: "Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Agree or disagree. Don't, don't say it. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Do you agree or disagree? If you agree with that statement, you would be among 78% of evangelicals who believe that Jesus Christ is a created being, the second person in the Trinity, therefore not being God. That's called Arianism, and it's been denied since the 4th century. But 78% of evangelicals don't know what they believe about Jesus Now, I don't want to pull that, and I certainly don't want you to be embarrassed, especially because it could easily be tripped up by the question, because Jesus was, of course, born, but he's also pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. It can be confusing, and that's why, as a Christian believer, it's important to understand, well, what do I believe about Jesus? What do I believe about the church? What do I believe about baptism? What do I believe about the Lord's Supper? Do these things matter? The overwhelming answer to that question is, yes, they matter, And growth in the Christian life is growing in understanding about what we believe. That's why we use creeds. That's why we use the confessions. You know, when we look to the Westminster Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Confession, all these different things, that is our tradition. That's our theological heritage. It provides the roadmap for what we believe. It links us to history. It solidifies our confidence. It builds our faith. And if we as a church seek to continue to be faithful in those old paths... Even into new ages, we have to hold fast to that ancient truth that's been handed down to us since the time of the apostles themselves. That's why we do what we do. And that's why it is important for us, because it locates us in a historic stream of Christianity that we want to be found in and be found faithful. And So people of God, let us continue to confess exactly what we believe and why. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you teach us from the scriptures to be clear about what we believe because in the Bible you are clear. Lord, oftentimes it's easy to be discouraged because we don't know everything that we should or as much as we think we should, but Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to grow, grace to increase our confidence, grace to entrust ourselves to the care of your church and the faith that she declares. So, Lord, help us and give us your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.